Welcome back to another episode of Inside Medical Malpractice. Today we're speaking once again to Leilani Schweitzer. It's been a real pleasure talking to her on the first podcast, and if you haven't heard it yet, don't miss it. We're going to talk about an amazing TED Talk that she gave in 2013, where she shares the experience of losing a child to a series of medical errors and talks about her journey from incredible pain to amazing purpose and offers multiple and amazing insights for healthcare and legal professionals along the way. So don't miss it. And I mean it. Don't miss it. It's a great podcast. But now we're going to move into a couple of more personal questions about Leilani. And um, because I want to know more about her and what she does in her day-to-day. I'm just snoopy about things like that all the time. So first of all, welcome back, Leilani. Thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. I'm so happy you're here. Let's um, let's start by just talking about a typical day in your life. I'd like to hear that. You've got an important job, but it looks like you've got some other things on the go. What's a typical day look like? You wake up at what time and then what happens next? I'm an early riser, so I I like to get up early and enjoy time by myself in the morning. I, there's, there's a quiet that the early morning offers that the rest of the day just does not have. Um, so I'll get up early. I like to write in the morning, um, or I'll work on my art projects, or maybe if, if I have a really challenging letter or some kind of patient communication that I need to work on, I'll do that early in the morning. I, I just feel like it's a little bit fresher then. Um, or I'm, I'm fresher and just can focus before the emails start rolling in or the phone starts ringing. So I like to start my day pretty early, but that means I'm, my IQ drops with the setting sun. So I'm useless by 930 at night. Um, and that's okay. I try not to sign any large contracts after, after the sun goes down, but, um, yeah, I have, I have a, a lot of, um, friends and family who I'm really connected with. So almost every day I'm, I'm going on a walk or something with a close friend. Um, I really like to spend time outside, um, in my garden. Um, I, today I'm in Seattle, my partner is here. So I'm up here at his house and he lives in a place with a really beautiful, in a really beautiful neighborhood where I could walked early this morning and saw Mount Rainier and I, being outside and being in nature is really, really important to me. And I make an effort to do that every day. Nice. That sounds like a pretty perfect day sometimes, except for the early, except for the early morning part. I'm kind of the, I'm like, don't ask me to do much before 10 a.m. or after 10 a.m. I kind of got 12 hours in me, but I really appreciate and I'm awe of people who get up early and do stuff. So what do you do when you're not busy working? You talked a little bit about what you do outside of work, but what are some of your favorite pastimes? So I really love uh, making art. Um, That's a really big part of who I am and who I've been since I was a little kid. Um, I'm particularly intrigued by color and the way nature puts color together. I, I learn a lot from the palettes that I see in nature. Um, after Gabriel died, I created this artwork that's really quite tedious to make. Um, and I feel like that helped me metabolize my my grief was just the time that I spent 
making that artwork. And um, I still I still do those projects. I have a couple new ones in the works. I did one for, um, before the pandemic, I did three big projects in a year's time um, in different hospitals around the country. And that's something I really, um, it's very restorative to me. I need that kind of time by myself, that quiet time uh, to just kind of process the world. That's a time for me to I don't know, metabolize is really kind of a good word to sort of move through things that I deal with or things that we all deal with. Um, so that's that's something that's really restorative and, you know, exercise is important to me and reading, I love to read. Um, yeah, so all of those things. That's good. Can you uh, describe the artwork that you made after Gabriel died? Sure, so this is, this is a little bit of one. You can see how it um, it moves. If there was a breeze, it would move. So these are made, this particular one is made from um, paint samples that I cut each square by hand, um, which took me hours. I no longer do that. I have somebody else cut them for me. But um, it, was, it was very, I had kind of a vision that sort of struck the way that Sometimes creativity can help us out that way. You get a really sudden inspiration, which I did. And I, I had a big blank wall in my house and I filled it up with this, this kind of moving kinetic color that I wanted to create. And um, since then I've done, I've done many of them. I've had many commissions and it's, it's a really important, fun, joyful outlet for me that I really um, appreciate that I'm, I'm able to do that. And, you know, to have a, have a job that, um, pays the bills allows your creativity to kind of expand in a way that's different than if you need to make a living doing your art. So, um, I'm glad that I'm able to do that the way I am. So. That's a great point. And for those of you <clears throat> listening to the podcast and not watching, um, what Leilani is describing, Behind her is this gorgeous, colorful, um, I don't know if it's called a mirage, but it's like a lot of different pieces of color on string that moves and it covers a whole wall behind her. And it's absolutely beautiful. So if you have a moment to um, pop into the video portion of this, um, have a look at it because it's really, really beautiful and really fun. It makes a striking background for her beautiful face that I'm looking at right now. So... You mentioned that you were very artistic as a child. Um, tell us about everything else you were as a child. What were you like? So I have two younger sisters. I'm the oldest. Um, I was pretty shy. Um, I'm still very much an introvert, though people don't always believe that. Um, but I, I like to go walking through, I grew up in the desert in Nevada and I like to go walking out in the desert and look for rocks and flowers and just roam aimlessly, um, usually barefoot. And I'm like, mom, really? You let me do that? <laughs> Which seems crazy now, but um, I really loved to do that. And even then was always looking at colors and looking for patterns and, and very aware of the environment that I was in. Um, 
and always kind of aware, maybe aware isn't the right word, but but kind of like, I don't really understand the rest of the world. Sort of like, huh, I don't understand how this place works. And I, I still feel that's that way quite often. I'm like, this just does not make any sense to me. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked school. I, but art, art was always my thing. I liked to sew. I would sew all my own clothes. And it's just something I really... I really enjoyed and or was I don't know that it, I necessarily thought about it as enjoyment but that was just a bit really big part of my life kind of a life force for me is to do that and you mentioned in the other podcast that your background was as an architect and designer prior to your current work at Stanford University so that's interesting it's it's lucky and I'm grateful that you've been able to carry parts of that on if you weren't working as uh, in your current job in risk management at Stanford, what would you be doing? Is it fair to say you'd be full-time art or would, do you have another career path you might've chosen? Uh, I'd love to think that I'd be a full-time artist, but uh, that's not everybody gets to do that. That's pretty hard. Um, but I think I would be working with really creative people. I don't know, maybe in some kind of communications or marketing or something like that. Um, I really enjoy kind of getting to the heart of what motivates people and then trying out, trying to think about how to communicate with them. I think about that a lot. Um, if, if I could do everything over, I would, um, I'd be an eye surgeon. That's what I think would be just an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing. I would be terrible at it. I should never, ever, ever have that kind of responsibility ever. But I, I think the way that they can change somebody's lives, change lives so quickly is amazing to me. I just think it's incredible. So that I, that'd be cool, but I should <laughs> No, I'd be very bad at it. I'd be very bad at it. So, Is there an experience in your background that made you think I should be an eye surgeon? Uh, my mom, both of my parents had their cataracts removed and then were astonished about the way the world looked just driving home from the clinic. That was quite impressive to me. Um, and then my mom had has had some other procedures done where the transformation is so remarkable and so sudden that I just think that I'm just awestruck by it. So I, I think that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> One of the many miracles that takes place in medicine every single day, huh? every day. Yes. Yeah. So a general question that I think many of us would like to know, what is the experience of writing and pitching and delivering and living with the aftermath of, of a TED Talk like? Tell us about that story. And and you had two of them. Yeah, yeah. That that Medicine X one, um, I did a couple, like a year after the first TEDx. So I... Um, I know a lot of people pitch to do those now, but at the time the opportunity was presented to me. And at that time I was working for a marketing company and uh, my boss was a very 
big believer of anytime you can speak in public, you absolutely do it. And I admire him. He's one of the smartest, most insightful people that I know. And so he wanted me to do it or he encouraged me, of course. And so I took that opportunity and I, I, all I thought about was walking off the stage. I had no preconceived notion of what anything else would come from doing that. All I knew is I want to walk off that stage and feel good about everything that I said. And so I worked, I worked hard on it for probably about four months before it was, I presented it. Um, because I really, I wanted to do my son a service. That's how I felt about it, is I wanted to say things on his behalf that he could not say himself. Um, and so that was a that was motivating for me to really work at it. And then um, from there, it, it brought me opportunities to do many speaking engagements. And before... COVID, I was doing a lot of them. Um, I think the I think in 2018, I did 17 of them in person, um, which is quite astonishing to me. I don't think that I have, or I know that my story is not all that special with the exception that Stanford told me what happened. Um, that's the thing that's exceptional about my story. I am not, the circumstance is not unique. Um, and so, you know, sometimes out of the blue, I will get emails from people and that's, it's, I mean, it all feels like it's, it's part of Gabriel's legacy. And so I'm glad that I can move that forward. And then I had the opportunity to be on the, um, TED radio hour, which that has a large, um, that podcast has a really large circulation. And then um, I was part of um, a Radiolab episode, and that was really interesting and fun. Um, when I have listened to those for years before I got to be on them, so that was pretty cool um, to do. But it's always a little—it's a little bit scary to put your story out there and put it in someone else's hands and and trust that they're going to treat it in a way that you're going to be pleased about it. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad I did it. I'm really glad that I did it, but I didn't know what was going to happen from it. But um, it's, I think it's the, the message is powerful um, or it seems to be powerful with certain people. Um and I, I'm glad I worked as hard as I did on it because it it took it took that much work to get it to get it to where it was or went to. I believe that you worked on that because there's you've got some you know like I said so many times I just stopped and went like huh because there's so many insightful comments in there and the way you said them and the and the connections that you made between things I had never connected before so I'm grateful. And I'd argue that the only unusual thing about your circumstance is that Stanford was <clears throat> transparent with you. I think your response to that transparency um, and the compassion you found for the other people involved in the error to me is, from the healthcare perspective, that's absolutely outstanding. And I'm grateful for that. 
but good work. And it sounds like it opened up some amazing doors for you. I mean, that's how I know about you because I've watched you 40 times. The first time I met Leilani, I says like, however many watches, how many, however many views you have of your TED, your TED talk, add, you know, 3,500 or 4,000 to it because I've shown it that many times to that many people. So I appreciate um, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been powerful in the healthcare group. It has. So, um, just a general question. What gets you up in the morning? What excites you about your life right now? I don't know. This I'm, I like this time of my life. Um, I have a lot of creative outlets that I get to pursue. I have really strong relationships that are nurturing to me that I hope I'm nurturing to them as well. Um, I like my work. I'm excited about this book project I've been working on. Um, it's May, it's spring, it's summer. I guess it's summer now, which is always a wonderful thing to see. So yeah, I've, I've, I've got a lot of good things happening and I, I feel really fortunate to have them. Good. Really nice. Is there anything that keeps you up in the middle of the night? The state of the world can get pretty dang heavy, um, as I think any of us who are paying attention to or is aware of. Um, that's That can be hard. Um, but again, going back to seeing what is my scope and taking action in a way that matters to me and that um, while a lot of a lot of good things can happen from a lot of people making very small steps and um, recognizing that I can make some small steps in different directions and hoping that that will add up to something bigger than me. I try to think about that um, and move towards doing that. But yeah, I don't I don't lose too much sleep these days. I'm I'm glad to tell you it hasn't always been true. That hasn't always been <laughs> no. true. Not too much right now. I'm really glad to hear that. I am. If you could go backwards, uh, what advice would you offer your younger self? Uh, always be kind. Mm. Um, move towards expansion. Always, always uh, push towards the things that are going to push you. Move towards the things that are going to push you to a new place. And don't let anybody push you around. That is some damn good advice right there. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <clears throat> well said. Is there something that most people often get wrong about you? I think maybe some people can think that I'm quite quiet and meek and don't really expect a lot. And then... Um, I can bring some experience that maybe they weren't quite prepared for. Sometimes that happens. Um, but I suppose that's true of everybody, right? We don't know everyone's life story or what they're going to bring to a discussion. Uh, is that mostly in a work setting or is that in a friend and family setting? Um, I think that's more in a work setting. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my partner the other day and he said, oh, that should be that should be your your icebreaker story where people say what do you, what did you what's a story about you that no one would know and i used to de design slot machines 
in a long time ago, uh, which is pretty random and strange, but uh, something we do in Nevada. Um, so that was that's kind of a funny thing of like, oh yeah, designed the carnival slot machine a long time ago. That's a good one. I mean, everybody needs a good party trick, right? Or a good party story. So <laughs> you're the first person I've ever, ever met who designed slot machines. I didn't even know it was a job. How about that? It's a job. I also, this, this aside from the job I have now, probably the coolest job I ever had is when I was in college, I went to school um, at Montana State in Bozeman where there's a lot of um, paleontology work done. And I worked on making um, casts of fossils. So we made, at the studio I worked at, we made a giant T-Rex. And so I would get to hold all of the fossils in my hands and make it. That was really a fantastic, fun job. That was fun. That is a cool job. Is that T-Rex still standing? I think that one went to Tokyo, I think. So hopefully, hopefully it's still standing. I don't know. What's the crappiest job you ever had? Uh, I love that question. I love that question. Um, I, right after graduation, I moved to Washington, D.C., and I worked in a print house as a graphic designer. And I would, the, um, it was, oh, it was owned by two brothers and I would alternatively get hit on or yelled at by one or the other brothers, um, on like a daily basis. And finally I just quit. And that was, that was a good thing, but that was a, that was a super crappy job. So, um, that's the first one that came to mind for me. So <laughs> those brothers, geez, I wonder what they're doing now, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just one last question for you. Um, and I, I'm dying to hear the answer in, of it. Like, who's had a really important influence on your life, real or otherwise? And how have they influenced you? I think about my grandmothers. Uh, my dad's mother, Mary, had nine children. And my mom's mother, Josephine, had 14. And the size of their families were not something that they had a lot of choice in or control over. And the lives that they had where they never had a sit down day job a day in their life, like they, their lives were about survival, theirs and their own or their families and their own and how that, that was true for all of the women in my family who came before them and the men as well. And that, that gives to me I recognize all of the sacrifices that had to be made for me to have the life that I have. And I'm motivated to um, honor them by working hard every day, um, pursuing these ideas that I have in my head, um, because I know they never had those opportunities. And so I feel like those things are very, really very important. And um, I also, I have to say that aside from my parents, I think Stanford University has had the biggest influence on my life um, than any, aside from them, really. I mean, I know it's an institution, but um, 
Gabriel died there, which of course is really significant, but their response to me has been life-changing and uh, given me opportunities to do things that I never would have been able to do otherwise. Um, and I, I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. Um, and those, those again, were decisions made by people who were willing to take that risk on me. And I, I recognize that and I really value that. Um, and it's, it's motivating for me to be aware of that. Hmm. That's a really beautiful answer. So let's, uh, in closing, give a shout out to the grandmothers and the parents and the employers that help us all move forward in our life in, in different ways. So thank you. Well, that's going to end this shorter version of the podcast, but I want to say thank you so much, Leilani, for sharing this insight and tell about yourself. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. So thank you so, so much. And once again, if you haven't heard it, don't miss the longer podcast by Leilani, which includes uh, talking about an amazing TED Talk she gave in 2013 that uh, where she shares an experience of losing her child, Gabriel, and her journey in finding purpose and sharing helping other people through their pain. So don't miss it. Um, I just want to make a brief announcement that this will be the last podcast we have for this season. We're going to take a couple months to regroup and replan. And we'll be back in September 2022 with a great new lineup. I've already got some great guests lined up. So thank you so much for listening. Goodbye and take good care. Mm -hmm.